The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Now that we know where, our fighters will be ready and waiting, all of them. Of course, if Schultz is wrong, other important targets will be left undefended. How could he be wrong? Dusseldorf, Hamburg, the Russian front, 100% correct. A military genius. I have observed that the psychic communication between Hogan and Schultz is very close. I must explore the matter further, alone. How did you spot the um, psychic connection? I think you have many connections. Not all of them psychic. Oh, such as? Mere suspicion. A police habit. Sure. What are you reporting to Berlin? That you're suspicious? No. That I have found a certified infallible genius. Sergeant Schultz. But you don't really believe that. In reporting to fools, one must always say what they want to hear. Morning, London. It's Thursday, October 2nd, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where the two of us will be with all of you from now until noon. <laughs> no, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And once again, welcome to our show today, where you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org or join in on the conversation at 519-661-3600. We'll be closing off our show today, as we near the noon hour in the final quarter, with a discussion of mixing politics and business. Some of the moral considerations and issues arising out of the current municipal election. Politicking and political etiquette. Would that be about right, Robert? I think you got it right, Bob. And... Given the fact of all the world's turmoil and possibly military action being taken against ISIS, the Ukraine crisis, what we see happening in the current Hong Kong demonstrations, and even what we see right here at home in our municipal elections right across the province, I thought I would take a few moments today, take them out to reflect on some of the essential elements of what it means to be living in a free, liberal democracy. My inspiration for doing so... Uh, you know, sprang out of some of the amazing observations made by our guest last week, Salim Mansour, who joined us to discuss the ISIS crisis. We'll start that discussion after our first break. But first, I understand that, Robert, you have a rather explosive suggestion or proposal to kick off our show today. I'll get to that at the end of the uh, the quarter. Um, I really want to start off with what got me about thinking about um, mm. uh, the use of civilians in war. Because on Monday, a great speech, at least I, I, in my opinion, it was a, an excellent speech. It was delivered at the United Nations. And, of course, that might sound somewhat unlikely, a good speech at the United Nations. But if you haven't heard Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech, then I suggest you give it a listen. It was, um, it's on, it's uh, on the Internet at C-SPAN. It's most notable for its clarity and truth, and for the fact that because of these qualities, it'll be totally ignored and forgotten to the peril of Israel and the Western world, because it is clear, and it is true. In his half-hour speech, Netanyahu connected the dots with a big, thick line, from ISIS to Hamas 
to Iran and from there predicted a future of nuclear war. But hey, did anybody listen to that on the, on the news? Nope, that's not covered. Here's a bit of his speech to quote from it. When it comes to their ultimate goals, Hamas is ISIS, and ISIS is Hamas. And what they share in common, all militant Islamists share in common. Some are radical Sunnis, some are radical Shiites. Some want to restore a pre-medieval caliphate from the 7th century. Others want to trigger the apocalyptic return of an imam from the 9th century. They operate in different lands, they target different victims, and they even kill each other in their battle for supremacy. But they all share a fanatic ideology. They all seek to create ever-expanding enclaves of militant Islam where there is no freedom, no tolerance, where women are treated as chattel. Christians are decimated and minorities are subjugated. Sometimes given the stark choice, convert or die. For them, anyone can be considered an infidel, including fellow Muslims. Ladies and gentlemen, says Netanyahu, Militant Islam's ambition to dominate the world seems mad, but so too did the global ambitions of another fanatic ideology that swept into power eight decades ago. The Nazis believed in a master race. The militant Islamists believe in a master faith. They just disagree among them who will be the master of the master faith. That's what they truly disagree about. And therefore, the question before us is whether militant Islam will have the power to realize its unbridled ambitions. Unquote. Netanyahu went on, actually, and made another beautiful political connection. You know, I, n- I never he heard He said that Sorry. the one place that that could soon happen is, as he called it, the Islamic State of Iran, using <laughs> Islamic State instead of the Islamic Republic. Mm. Sorry, Bob, you were saying? I was saying I never heard the speech uh, directly, and I'm surprised at what I'm hearing you say. Gets uh, better. It, wow, okay, well, I'm listening, because this certainly feeds into a lot of what I was going to come up with. Oh, good, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's an absolute stroke of political acumen to call the Islamic Republic of Iran the Islamic State of Iran, for in truth, there's no difference, as Netanyahu pointed out. He correctly tied the anti-Semitism of the Nazis to the same hatred in militant Islam and its followers, ISIS, Iran, Hamas, and others, Boko Haram and and the rest. He made a startling revelation regarding a recent decision by the United Nations Human Rights Commission. Now, this is where everybody should take heed. Quoting from Netanyahu's speech, By investigating Israel rather than Hamas for war crimes, the UN Human Rights Council, and by the way, by the way, when he brings up the words UN Human Rights Council, he quite frankly said it's an oxymoronic term to think (laughs) that the United Nations could have such a thing as a Human Rights Council, but I digress. To continue, he says the UN Human Rights Council has betrayed its noble mission to protect the innocent. In fact, what it's doing is to turn the laws of war upside down. Israel, which took unprecedented steps to minimize civilian casualties, Israel is condemned. Hamas, which both targeted and hid behind civilians, that's a double war crime, Hamas is given a pass. The Human Rights Council, Netanyahu continues, is thus sending a clear message to terrorists everywhere. Use civilians as a human shield. Use them again and again and again. And you know why? Because sadly, it works. 
by granting international legitimacy to the use of human shields, the UN Human Rights Council has thus become a terrorist rights council, and it will have repercussions. It probably already has about the use of civilians as human shields, unquote. Now, what's chilling about that, of course, is that when he says it probably already has, he's absolutely right. There is absolutely no doubt that if the United States Human, uh, human Rights Council had investigated Hamas and, and condemned the use of civilians, that there are a number of civilians out there today dead because of the United Nations' refusal to investigate Hamas. They have blood on their hands. I think it's time to demonstrate that protecting civilians should not work as a means of preventing a country to properly defend itself. Now, although there's a controversy about the killing of civilians in World War II, there can be no doubt that the firebombing of Dresden and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki hastened the end to both wars. There's no doubt about it. That's a fact. In Germany, it was an attack on the economy and the pride of that country deepening its already lowered morale and willingness to continue fighting. In Japan, it shocked the nation into almost immediate surrender, killing of civilians. Now, although the technology of today makes it much easier to surgically target combatants over civilians, I posit that in many cases it's necessary not to target civilians, but to not hesitate in targeting structures which might bring about massive civilian deaths. I'm not advocating that anybody go out there and just kill civilians for the sake of killing civilians. But they should not balk at destroying targets where even massive civilian deaths, like in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, or Dresden, are the result. I'm thinking particularly about Gaza when I'm thinking about this, and Iran, although there's no reason this Dresden theory should not apply to any warfare. The civilian population in Gaza elected Hamas to govern them. The civilian population of Gaza can, as many have, leave that strip of land to live in peace elsewhere if they chose. Those that chose to remain in Gaza are just as guilty of terrorism as the combatants who actually fire the rockets indiscriminately into Israel. It is the civilians of Gaza who are dancing in the streets on 9-11, as Netanyahu reminded us in his speech, it is the civilians of Gaza whose economy feeds, clothes, and protects the men who fire the rockets. It's the civilians of Gaza who provide the moral support to Hamas. And as a consequence, no one should shed a tear for any Gazan civilian killed when Israel chooses to defend itself. The real problem arises when Israel with its, I consider, a weakened sense of altruistic, sacrificial morality, risks the lives of its own citizens and the existence of its own nation when it calls ahead to warn people occupying Gazan military targets that they're about to be bombed for fear of inadvertently hitting a civilian. I quite frankly can't believe it that <laughs> Israel will call ahead, email ahead, as he said on, uh, in his speech, text ahead, send flyers, phone particular targets in Gaza to warn them that they're about to be bombed, and they give them an hour warning. And then after they bomb them, they send in aid. Yes. <laughs> tons and tons yeah. of aid, billions of dollars worth of aid because of the poor civilians that were killed. And I told you as before, these civilians are not innocent. Gaza should suffer the same fate as Dresden, and for the same reasons. 
Iran should suffer the same fate as Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and for the same reasons. In war, when the very survival of your nation and your life is at stake, as a military commander, you have to do your job. You have to accept the loss of the lives of civilian enemies to ensure the survival of the civilians in your own country. It seems that we in the West carry the great burden of having won the Second World War. It is said that to the victor go the spoils, but in truth, to the victor goes the guilt. And it is this guilt of having to do what is necessary in Germany and Japan to end the war, which is now crippling us, when it's now time to do the same in Gaza and Iran. For all the clarity and truth in Netanyahu's speech, there is still lacking the cold-hearted fortitude to do what he knows to be right and as the leader of the morally superior country to do his job. I believe that what really stays his hand in Gaza and Iran is the hostile response he will receive from the rest of the world, but in particular the West, whose opinion he respects and relies on. That very part of the world which did what was necessary back in 1945, but which today has lost its moral compass, and rather than feel the same sense of false guilt it felt by bombing Germany and Japan, would rather make a deal with the enemy to have peace in our time. Civilian deaths in any aggressor country, and Iran is an aggressor country, are solely the result of the leaders of that country. The shopkeepers in Dresden who were killed when the bombs of Britain and the United States fell upon them, died at the hands of Hitler and the Nazis, not the British or the Americans. The dead children in Hiroshima and Nagasaki are the sole responsibility of Emperor Hirohito and his generals, no one else. And if it comes to it, the dead civilians in Gaza and Iran are the sole responsibility of Hamas and the Ayatollahs in Tehran. It's time the West learned to do what's right and to fight a war properly. These surgical strikes only serve to prolong a conflict and embolden the enemy. World War II, from its beginning to its end, lasted six years and one day, resulting in the deaths of over 45 million civilians. The war in Iraq lasted eight years, eight months, three weeks, five days. The war in Afghanistan still going on, has so far lasted 12 years, 11 months, 3 weeks, and 4 days, and we're still fighting it. This should tell us something about surgical strikes versus all-out, boots-on-the-ground war. You do not just overthrow a regime or a government. You overthrow a nation. You overthrow a people. You overthrow the civilian population, something Mr. Netanyahu should take heed of. Scary stuff. It is scary stuff. He, if anybody listens to Netanyahu's speech, we're in for some very trying times ahead when Iran gets the bomb. Unbelievable. I mean, it is an Islamic state, and we know the atrocities that ISIS can do. And they're making it clear to us. They're telling us what they want to do. It's not like, you know, we have to figure it out. <laughs> they're know? very blunt yes. about destroying Israel, very blunt about destroying the West and, and, and establishing a, a universal global caliphate. I mean, why can't we wake up? Uh, I, uh, that's sort of what I'm going to be getting to on my part of the show coming up next after this break. Did you want to introduce this? or I think the clip can speak for itself, okay, actually. I of course, it's from Hogan's it. Heroes. It's World War II, and it's a time when we did our job and did what was right. Okay, we'll be back right after this. 
in Clink's office today. What did you think when you first saw me? What's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? It's a long story that may be over very soon. What else did you think? Your turn. Of course. I thought that I would very much like to be in your arms. And I knew that I would have to make it happen. Soon. Who are you? A woman who would like to be something other than what I am. Help me. And the woman, Colonel, she was putty in your hands? I said forget it, huh? Gentlemen, I've discussed these things, Lebeau. I said forget it. Sure, Colonel. Look, she may be on our side. Just maybe. Did you know she was leaving? No, I didn't know. Why didn't you tell me last night you were leaving? Just found out this morning. But it's only for overnight. I'll be back. Where are you going? Zuglitz. Zuglitz? Some security matter at the ball-bearing plant. Until tomorrow, then? Yeah, until tomorrow. Where's she going, Colonel? Zuglitz. Zuglitz? And you didn't stop her? I wasn't that sure, so I didn't try. Well, I guess that takes care of the mission. Yeah. Sure does, all right. Maybe she wasn't in the right shelter, Colonel. Maybe. You had no choice. Sure. Put that away. My congratulations. You didn't go? I never intended to go. I was suspicious, so I was testing you. Then you weren't exactly on our side. I was doing my job. And what's your job right now? I've recommended a disaster. My superiors are looking for me. They are not tolerant of disasters. You've got a problem. A man who could arrange the bombing of Zuglitz should be able to get me out of Germany. This another trap? I get out or I die. Very unpleasantly. We'll get you out. Thank you. Hogan, why did you let me go? I was doing my job. You know, I found uh, the essence of that episode of Hogan's Heroes to be among one of the more compelling ones in terms of a test of principle and loyalty and love, really. Just as fighting a physical war requires doing the job, so too does fighting the war of ideas 
upon which the physical world manifests itself. That too requires doing the job. Otherwise, if you don't do that job, you're going to have to do the second job, the <laughs> physical job. And unless you want to be collateral damage, as so many Japanese and Germans were in the last war, you better get on top of the game and find out what these ideas are that are killing you and your children in the, in the name of great, wonderful things. You know, that's how it works. They say that all's fair in love and war, when in reality, we all know that there's nothing fair about it when all is fair. It's a politically correct way of saying that anything goes to get the job done. The job being one's goal or objective, a purpose. Words that I'm using with purpose and an objective. Because whether it's moral or not depends upon the purpose and objective. In the Hogan's Hero scenario we just heard, each of the characters, Colonel Hogan and, and Carla Hoffman, played by Marion Moses, on each side of the conflict were clearly focused on what their values and objectives were and the environment in which each of them lived. She wanted to get out of the one she was in, and Hogan recognized that, but she couldn't abandon, quote, her job of the time. And in our show opener today, the character Carla Hoffman says to Hogan, in reporting to fools, one must always say what they want to hear, end quote. Well, that works both ways, bringing it back to home. Sometimes the fools are the voters or the citizens, and the politicians and legislators simply tell them what they want to hear. It's kind of like the emperor's new clothes, which we'll be delving into a little later on. <coughs> and that's the theme of my message today. When it comes to politics, it seems that fools <laughs> just rush in. Last week, our guest Salim Mansour said something that I found most disturbing about the disintegration of liberal democracy in which we may be the last generation to reasonably enjoy. The growth of what is called government, but is not government, is startling. And it can be witnessed from the local level, right here in London, in the municipal campaigns, to regional governments, to provinces, to the federal government, to the international scene that you've just been talking about, Robert. And the trend is universal, not just here or south of the border. It's become clear to me that much of this unwarranted growth of what is called government is the consequence really of an unconscious hatred of the nature of government, democracy, and voting. Most people have forgotten or just never learned what true democracy is all about and what it isn't about. One of the most alarming observations I thought that Salim made last week on our show, at least the one that struck me the most, was his loose observation that the Western liberal democracies have lost their cultural roots to such a degree that our cultural history is generally being preserved only by living memory. Remember when he said that? Mm -hmm. Going back only three or four generations, so almost to remember what happened in World War I, just the last veterans have recently died out, you have to talk to one of them to really get an accurate story of w what was happening. And, you know... After which, after that, only a few rare few people have true and factual hardcore knowledge about how liberal democracies must function if they are to survive. You can see it right here at the local level. I've been listening to all kinds of promises made by candidates for a host of offices, promises that they would never think could lead to anything horrendous, but th that they all see as good, that quite frankly aren't even legitimately their promises to make, even when they are legal. 
we hear everything, oh, they're promising jobs, entertainment centers, uh, education, you name it, they just make it up as they go along. I, you know, when I asked Paul Cheng, minority candidate, why he was talking about everything from education plans to promoting patents to, to all sorts of non-civic election things, he said, that's okay, because these jurisdictional taboos have already been broken, so what's the problem? That's dangerous. Dangerous. Holy cow. That's what leads us into these situations. Uh, everybody was getting a chuckle out of municipal council candl- candidate uh, Cynthia Estridge's recent <laughs> uh, publicity stunt. I think you mean Etheridge. Etheridge. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what did I say? Estridge. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Estridge. Etheridge. <coughs> Losing my voice here. Um, she proposed that municipal candidates should all have a drug test and an IQ test based on her stated belief that the people who are currently sitting in council are so stupid and unintelligent. Because there's no other possible explanation, of course, for how messed up our local governments are. Must be stupid people. And to the extent that anyone could really take that seriously, I think her target of these tests was entirely misdirected. Maybe it should have been the people who put those bad politicians in power over and over again are the ones who should be getting the, the tests, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if our politicians can supposed to be tested, why shouldn't the rest of us? That's the nature the, of a democracy, isn't it? That nobody is above anybody else. Precisely. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> the whole idea of representative democracy at the local level and a liberal democracy in the broader sense has been generally dismissed to the ultimate detriment of all concerned. So I thought I'd begin by taking a few moments to get back to some basics to remind ourselves about a few of those basic truths regarding government, people, democracy, politics, philosophy, not in a heavy, detailed, or overly explanatory way, but in a more, look, here's, here's the way it is way, based upon just about everything we've been saying on this show for like 370 Thursdays in a row. <laughs> <laughs> we spent complete shows on most of the things I want to quickly review today, and that's not what I want to do over again. And, um, you know, every week we do this show, and we start off with that song by the Bee Gees, by the way. You know, people are wondering what our opening theme song is from. And it has, uh, we must have lucked out to find a tune that introduced our show. It's so perfect for what we're trying to do. Because the words that we chose for the opener uh, are just an ideal abstraction for our show's theme. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. For the balance of the second quarter, we're going to fade into color, and from color into black and white, from the red, orange, green, and blue, left to right political spectrum, to the black and white, left and right moral spectrum, from which all of the other variant political colors uh, uh, ultimately come from. So I just thought we'd take a breather, a quick review of these unavoidable basics. And here are some of the most basic ideas and concepts, if not necessarily hardwired principles, about some of the things we have to keep in mind if we want to keep our very hard-earned and very recent liberal democracy that has only been achieved in the most recent portion of human history. So let's begin. In the black and white world of reality, voting is not democracy. Almost every country, every corporation, every voluntarily associated group votes, but they are not democracies. (coughs) One man, one vote, one time, that's not democracy either. Communist countries are not democracies, and yet their citizens vote. For the Communist Party of their forced, you know, they get to vote for the Communist Party of their forced choice. And that's the tale behind the Hong Kong demonstrations that are taking place this very day. Mm -hmm. Hong Kong is no longer a democracy. 
The political world is consumed with the voting virus, as if voting itself is the standard of all good and evil. Remember what I said? Hamas was elected. That's right. Nothing could be further from the truth. Democracy itself we'll discuss in the next quarter of the show, along with the concept of liberalism with which it must be associated. But when we discuss democracy, we won't be talking about voting. Also, voting is not consent. Not to be crude, but to make my point, because it applies to all human relationships, including politics, just because a majority votes to kill, murder, or rape someone doesn't mean that the victim is consenting. There are a number of candidates in the municipal elections who often say that government should be run like a business. The business-minded candidates who think that the key problems at City Hall amount to a lack of business sense. But if you want to, pro- if you want to promise jobs or, you know, well, it better be your money, let's put it that way, that you're talking about if you're talking about making investments. You can't make promises with other people's money. That's not business or politics. It's just looting. Because in politics, it seems, you can make promises with other people's money, and more importantly, without their consent, just with a consensus of a voting majority. There are green candidates galore. Their agendas are so irrational from a, point of, from a political point of view, it's frightening. Yet they have the support of a great number of voters who together are all utterly destructive to the fabric of free democracies in their completely misguided political ideals and policies. Some people know about business, other people know about the environment, some understand medicine and health care. But so few really seem to understand what they're doing when they cast their vote in an election, or why things keep getting worse and getting better after each passing election. In the pretense we create to avoid the reality of our situation, we become engulfed by our own unrealities, and that's never a good thing. There are so many issues, you know, left and right, taxation, slavery or freedom, uh, morality, the law, all these things we, we, we get into, the poverty trap, you hear them talking about poverty now. These are just not the basic functions of government. So going into the break now, uh, you know, we're speaking of living memory that, um, that Salim was talking about. One very ancient way of preserving ideas and knowledge is the telling of myths, legends, and fairy tales. Stories would be handed down from generation to generation with subtle and sometimes not so subtle changes being made along the way until the current version is just a vague image of the original. So on this side of our break, you are about to hear a reading of what is essentially the original version of a very famous fairy tale. The Emperor Wears No Clothes or what I shall call the ideal version, the way it ought to be. On the other side of our break, when we return, you'll be hearing a slightly different version of the same story, or what I shall call the not ideal version, the way it is version in those unfortunate countries that have never discovered and do not know the ideal. More on that when we return. Hi, this is Harry Shearer. I'll be reading The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. Once upon a time, There was an emperor who was so very fond of new clothes that he spent all of his money on buying them. One day, two tricksters appeared at the kingdom. They dressed and acted as though they were trustworthy men and claimed to be clothes makers. They said that they knew how to weave clothing that had the most beautiful colors and patterns. But they said to anyone who would listen, Our clothing is very different from anything else you know of. Our clothing is invisible to anyone who is either a simpleton or who is unfit to hold their office. Loving new clothes as much as he did, he ordered his servants to bring them before him at once. When the men told the emperor about their clothing, he thought to himself, What fabulous clothes! 
If I were a suit made of those fabrics, I could determine which of my men is unfit for their office, and I could tell who is wise and who is foolish. Now, said the emperor to the clothes makers, you must weave me a suit immediately. Days passed, and the emperor wanted to know how much work had been done on his suit. But he did not want to visit the weavers himself, because he knew that a simpleton or a person unfit for his job would not be able to see the fabric. And the emperor did not want to know if he was such a person. So he decided to send someone else to find out how the weaving was going. More time passed, and the emperor sent more and more officers of court to see how much longer it would take for the suit to be completed. Each one looked at the empty looms, and each was afraid that he was a simpleton or unfit for his job. And so each listened to the impostor's descriptions of the suit, and then repeated it to the emperor. Soon the whole empire was talking about the emperor's suit, and they all knew what it meant if one could not see it. They were all very excited to find out who among them was wise or foolish. And now it was time for the emperor himself to see the suit, which had cost him a lot of money. He went to the weaver's room with a few of the officers of the court who had already seen his suit. When he looked at the empty looms, an officer asked him, Isn't this suit absolutely magnificent? How can I not see the suit? thought the emperor to himself. Am I a simpleton? Or am I unfit to be the emperor? That would be horrible! Oh, I love what you've done with fabric! The suit is absolutely fabulous, said the emperor to the weavers. He, too, had decided to pretend to see the suit so that no one would know that he was a simpleton or unfit to be emperor. The officers advised the emperor to wear the suit to the upcoming festival, which was to begin with a parade led by the emperor, and he agreed. On the day of the parade, the emperor came to the weavers. One of the tricksters held his arms up as if he were carrying a jacket and said, your Majesty, here is your jacket. Please, try it on. The other pretended to be holding something as well and said, Your Majesty, here are your trousers. Please, try them on. The Emperor took off his silk suit, which was very regal, and tried to put on the invisible one. Finally, the Emperor walked out of the palace and led the parade through the city. All the people looking on cried out, Oh, how beautiful are the emperor's new clothes! What a magnificent suit he has! No one would admit that they could not see the emperor's clothes, because no one wanted to be thought of as a simpleton or unfit for their job. Oh, but the emperor has nothing on at all, said a little child. Listen to the voice of an innocent child, exclaimed the child's father. And what the child had said was whispered from one person to another. Finally, all the people cried out, The Emperor has nothing on at all! The Emperor was very upset, because he knew that the people were right. But he knew that the procession must go on until he could get back to his palace. The Emperor's New Clothes A story based upon a popular story by calm reason. And so one day the Emperor called for some tailors to help him choose a new outfit. And I guess you kind of think you know the rest of the story. But here's a word of warning, dear listener. You don't. You know what you think is the rest of the story. The story you know goes something like this. 
The weavers pretended to weave cloth out of nothing, and the emperor was so vain he pretended he could see it, and everyone else went along with the pretense until a little boy said, "He's got no clothes on," and that is the version of the story which is told, but it's not the true story. Now a good chunk of the rest of the story carries on in the way you already understand, but with one slight difference. The emperor knew damn well he was naked. He pretended that he was pretended, and then the one boy puts up his hands and says, "He's got nothing on." Ah, this is where we stop the story, dear listener. Of course, the story you've heard, everyone falls about laughing. But no, the true story is there's a shocked silence. The boy is dragged away to the center of the town. The armies surround him. A judge turns up. And they read a proclamation for doubting the emperor's fine clothes. This boy shall be condemned to death. The father of the boy, pleading, says, "But sire, where does it say? In what books of our land does it say that the punishment should be death? Maybe the boy's simply a fool, like you said." And at that point, the tailors bring out a book, old and wise-looking, bound in leather. Written in fine, florid, foreign hand, and quaking, say, "I swear this book is the word of God. It is the law that any that doubt shall be put to death." And as the drips of sweat fall from the tailor's brow, the emperor holds up the book and says, "Indeed, it is so." The father of the boy, pleading, says, "But that's not the word of God." The judge cries out, "Blasphemy!" Stone them both to death. The boy's mother, sobbing with tears, throws herself on the emperor's mercy. Please, your honor, please, sire, please spare my family. The emperor looks kindly upon her and says, "Hmm, it is time I took a wife." And after a moment's silence, he looks to her, and she looks to her husband, and he says to her, "And so, madam, will you be my bride?" She falters a little. And at this point, the king's soldiers are starting to gather stones for the stoning. Come now, lady, which is it to be? Will you marry me, or will you be stoned to death? After all, are these not fine clothes? And sobbing, she says, "Yes, sire, that is indeed a wonderful garment. We shall be married tomorrow." Of course, a horrible story like this could never be passed down the generations, and so. Those quaking, fearful people made sure that their children learned the version you know. Well, that's the version we don't want to live. What I find interesting about each version of the Emperor wears no clothes—the original Hans Christian Andersen version and the second interpretation that we just heard—is that each version is valid. What makes them different is the kind of society in which the same events may have occurred in these representative parables. If the people were living in what you and I would call a relatively liberal democracy, then Anderson's original version, the ideal version, would be the more likely scenario. In fact, that's one of the clues that you've still got some remnant of a free society left when the people can speak freely, and the rulers must bear the consequences without being able to punish them. They all laughed at the king, and he had to suck it up. In this sense, the people. Were participating in the democratic process, and they did it without voting. They did it just by speaking up.
But in the second scenario, the not ideal version, the people were clearly not living in a liberal democracy. But here's the rub. They nevertheless participated in creating their political horror story by all participating in the lie. It's an untruth. goes back to my quarter, doesn't it, about it civilians does. being not guiltless. Exactly. It's, they all participated. It was an unre- unreality, just like the character Carla Hoffman in the, in the Hogan's Heroes clips. She, she knew what she was doing. And in such a society, the second horrible consequence is very much the likely outcome of a people who are collectively committed to this gross untruth. Their fear, their pain and suffering is a consequence, it's not a punishment, of their failure to be moral. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Or, if the truth is out in the open, everything will be right. Because you'll be basing it on reality and reason. Talk about an almost literal parallel with respect to the meaning of clothes in both the Emperor's Tale and the words from our weekly intro tune. (laughs) Isn't it interesting, Robert? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people have analyzed uh, the whole Hans Christian Andersen issue was really interesting. Apparently, Anderson, according to a tale, apparently came up with the idea after he read uh, uh, his manuscript to a child and had its source in a childhood incident similar to the tale. He later recalled standing in a crowd with his mother waiting to see King Frederick the Sixth. When the king made his appearance, Anderson cried out, oh, he's nothing more but a hu- than a human being. <laughs> he's yes. just like the rest of us, right? And his mother tried to silence him by crying, have you gone mad, child? Well, that's the story, and, it, and it's just, you see it illustrated in politics all around the world. You know, socialism and democracy, and this is a reality, they're incompatible. Democracy is only functional in a free society. And this ideal, a relatively free society, has only been realized and achieved in a very brief moment of human history. You know, people say government's a business, but it's not a business that, when so described, justifies using taxpayer money for business ventures. Nor is government a social charity that, when so described, justifies using taxpayer money to give to any cause, need, or entertainment event. Government as a business is a right-wing idea. Government as a social charity is a left-wing idea. Remember what we always say about government Isabel Patterson says it in the quickest sentence, what is governed is force. So when you go into the political marketplace, either as a candidate or as a voter, what you are proposing as a candidate and supporting as a voter is how you believe that physical force should be used in your society. Whether you're talking about socialized health care or bombing foreign nations, you're determining how your government will use the force of law backed by the force of guns and bombs. If you don't believe that using force is immoral or justifiable in a particular private personal situation, then it makes no sense to believe that it's okay for a government or duly elected committee to commit the same forcible acts. I don't have a personal right to use a gun to go down the street and force my neighbor to pay for the welfare of a friend of mine who may be in need. So too it is with government. There is a moral force at work here. The only differences between the private and the public is the nature of the ultimate negative consequence, as witness all the trouble spots in the world today. You know, I was being uh, cc'd in an email between yourself and Paul McKeever about a month ago there, Robert, and during the conversation that the two of you had, 
Robert or Paul said an interesting thing to you. He said, and I quote, currently people think we have a government because some people got elected and they advise a person who has some nice outfits and wears a fine metal and bejeweled crown. <laughs> emperor, the emperor, right? There is literally no substantive difference between what Alphonse Capone and his gang were doing and what our elected people do. Each retaliated in respect of murders, assaults, and thefts, but each also has taken people's lives, liberty, and property without their consent. A government, what is called a government, never does the latter, and that which does the latter is not, by proper definition, a government. The fact of the matter is that with the exception of folks like you and me, and he's talking about you and him, <laughs> nobody with any influence actually wants a government at all. Government, politically, is arguably the most hated idea in politics, not only by theocrats, but by looters and moochers of other kinds as well, who in past election have comprised the vast majority of the electorate. And that was his point. You know, that's, people w don't really want a democracy. They want to get around it. They want to be rulers. They all want to be emperors, right? Yes, yes, indeed. And theocracy is one form of that. Theocracy is pure brute force. Mere anarchy set loose upon the world, as Salim Mansour quoted us last week. It is not a form of government at all, and neither is communism, socialism, fascism, or any other isms. They're just states. They're not governments. They're not governing anything. They're not anything. governing, no. I would usually, you know, uh, but, you know, the chief practical reason, by the way, to be aware of the ideas and principles and concepts that we have oh so briefly touched upon today is not because they will necessarily solve any of our political problems on the basis of that knowledge alone. Of course, they have to be acted upon. But to borrow an observation from another past guest we've had on this show, Lord Christopher Monckton, at least you'll be able to spot the rot when you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Remember that? Indeed, I do. Uh, that BS, once recognized and seen for what it is, leaves every dictator around the world and the vast majority of our current local crop of politicians and candidates as naked as the emperor in his new clothes. As with the emperor, the truth will expose them to be seen for what they really are. Looters and moochers who just want to have some nice outfits and wear a fine metal and bejeweled crown. <laughs> I'll give the last word on the values of living in a liberal democracy to TV talk show host Bill Maher, as recently expressed by him just this past Friday, September 26th, and still as consistent with his opinions on this issue as he was in our selected Bill Maher audio bite of 2001 that we played on the show last week. Good for him. Let's listen in. And finally, new rule, the Pennsylvania teenager who <laughs> faces up to two years in jail for disrespecting this statue of Jesus <laughs> must show us he's really got balls and try it with a statue of Muhammad. <laughs> Actually, that's a trick question because there are no statues of Muhammad because if you made one, there'd be a fatwa and you'd wind up dead. <laughs> Now, folks, I know, as difficult as it is to face this issue, it is important for us as Americans to remember what we stand for. Cultures are different. It's okay to judge that rule of law isn't just different than theocracy. It's better. If you don't see that, you're either a religious fanatic or a masochist. But one thing you are certainly not is a liberal. 
To count yourself as a liberal, you have to stand up for liberal principles, free speech, separation of church and state. Freedom to practice any religion or no religion without the threat of violence. Respect for, respect for minorities, including homosexuals. Equality for women. It, uh, it amazes me how here in America we go nuts over the tiniest violations of these values, while gross atrocities are ignored across the world. We hear a lot about the Republican war on women. It's not cool, Rush Limbaugh called somebody a slut. Okay, but Saudi women can't vote or drive or hold a job or leave the house without a man. Overwhelming majorities in every Muslim country say a wife is always obliged to obey her husband. That all seems like a bigger issue than evangelical Christian bakeries refusing to make gay wedding cakes. Ninety-one percent of Egyptian women have had their clitorises forcibly removed. Ninety-eight percent of Somalian women have. Ayan Hirsi Ali grew up in Somalia and is one of them. She was scheduled to speak at Yale last week, but the school's atheist organization, my people, <laughs> complained that she, quote, did not represent the totality of the ex-Muslim experience. Meaning what, the women who like mutilation? You're atheists. You should be attacking religion, not siding with the people who hold women down and violate them, which apparently you will defend in the name of multiculturalism, and then lose your when someone refers to Chaz Bono by the wrong pronoun. You know, I, I don't always agree with Bill Murr, but that was a particularly good uh, rant he had there. What do you think, Bob? No, you know, Bill Bill is sort of on the left on a lot of things relative to us, but not on some of those basic issues. No. And and it shows he's almost an old-fashioned left-winger, you know, from, from an era gone by, hmm. where he still recognizes those fundamental, well, values of a liberal democracy, as he just described them. Although sometimes you wonder if he recognizes the conflict in his own philosophy with regard to those same values. But that's, that's another issue for another day. You know, from uh, when we started off the show talking about possible nuclear war in Dresden and Hiroshima and then migrated to the emperor wears no clothes and why civilians are actually guilty of the, the government they elect and deserve the government they elect. And I'm going to bring it back down to the local level now and uh, talk about a, uh, a question which was posed on, on Facebook to, uh, by one of my friends to all of her friends. And the question is this, is it inappropriate to campaign for a candidate via your business? I received an email from a very major company that mass emailed a solicitation for donations for one of the mayoral candidates. I have, very, I have very strong political views, but I've never used my business as a platform to promote them. I don't hide my political stripe, but I think it's unprofessional to use a business relationship in order to potentially intimidate people. 
What I think is most concerning me is the fact that they're not just soliciting votes, they're asking for money. This is not a small company, but one that has quite a bit of political power, and the email isn't sent as a personal one, which would have been fine, but as one that seems to represent the company, as it is sent from the person's business email. That was the question, and one friend responded by saying that it was a very gray area, but there's a line one shouldn't cross between a personal home life and a business career, but that they would cross that line if we were in a crisis situation. And that's a very important point. I like the answer as it qualifies the action to one of necessity. In any election, especially municipal elections, it's quite difficult to imagine a life-and-death crisis scenario which might cause one to jeopardize their business by supporting one candidate over another. But on the other hand, municipal politics can, in many cases, cause one to lose one's home or business due to high taxation or over-regulation. But one can always move, as many people do, and businesses do, rather than take a public stand which might alienate customers. She also distinguished between the size of the business, a large business versus a home-based business, with, with it being more inappropriate for a larger business to involve itself into politics. I would somewhat disagree about the size of a business and the principle. I've never really registered a difference between the size of a private business and the rights and actions of its owner to do whatever he wishes with that business. Whether you own a small convenience store or a large private business employing thousands, the fact remains is that the business is yours to do with as you think best and what he thinks is in the own rash- their own rational self interest. Not unlike a Francisco Danconia from Atlas Shrugged, if anybody out there is familiar with the book, which they should read, deliberately destroying his business so that its riches would not fall into the hands of a corrupt government. Now, another commentator gave consideration to the type of business involved, saying, quote, I think it depends upon which good slash service you're providing. In my case, I'd never email existing clients asking them to vote some way or another. They need to know the the fact that I will give them the same high-quality service and price regardless of how they are voting and regardless of their political stripe. But I'm a lawyer and not a shoe salesman. And if a shoe retailer sends out a call to support a given candidate, the retailer can't really hurt anybody but himself. I think it would probably be wrong for an insurer, a bank, a law firm, a health professional, etc., to be soliciting for a candidate, because those people are in ongoing relationships of trust. Calling upon people to vote a certain way might erode that trust, which is a trust necessary for the proper provision of the service, unquote. I'd somewhat agree with this statement with the one caveat previously mentioned that in a crisis situation most likely felt beyond the municipal level, the life, liberty, and property of the professional and clients takes precedence over the perception of delivering high-quality service to all regardless of their political affiliation. Take, for example, a doctor in private practice. 
If in a provincial election, and a province, of course, has jurisdiction over health care, if in a provincial election we have, on the one hand, a political party which wants to make him, the doctor, the equivalent of a civil servant and determine what he can charge for his services and how he should practice medicine, uh, which, by the way, is exactly we, the way we have it today. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, we have a candidate or party who would not interfere with a doctor's practice. Then I say the doctor has every right and, in fact, an obligation to both himself and his patients to fight for his profession and livelihood publicly by openly trying to sway his clients and patients to vote for the candidate who would not socialize his practice and jeopardize the health of his clients. The same would apply, I think, to an insurer, a bank, a law firm, etc. The only exception I can see of this is in the if it's a public company, in which case the president does not speak for all its shareholders. Only in private companies is there a clear responsibility of the owner to pr act and accept blame or <coughs> credit for his actions. You know, in the past, I've examined the list of contributors to provincial political parties, and it came as no surprise to me, and as it doesn't to you, Bob, to find that the major banks, insurance companies, law firms, etc., are listed as financial donors to the three socialist parties in Queen's Park. And usually the amount was often small, we're talking just thousands, but often identical. But never have I seen any major business support a candidate or party in such a public way as to email customers asking for support or allowing signs to go on their property, primarily because I believe that most large corporations recognize that there's little difference in any of the three parties in the legislature and that they usually do quite well regardless of which party's in power. There is without a doubt a risk involved when a business which caters to a public at large openly involves itself in the political arena. A private business is an extension of the businessman's life, and if he is strongly committed to his politics, then to use his business to promote those politics is not in conflict with his life, and it can be considered to be the ultimate test of his convictions. If, however, a businessman openly supports a candidate who would violate your life, liberty, and property and that of the others, then the point's moot. He's evil and deserves to lose his customers at the very least and his life at best. If he's using his business to support a candidate whose views are likely to bring about greater protection of life, liberty, and property, then his actions are not only appropriate in my estimation and moral, but I would suggest necessary. And we'll leave it at that for this week, eh, Bob? Yes, Robert. You know, you, you were talking at the er earlier part of the show. You said, you know, we've been doing this show for so long, and sometimes it gets wearying, doesn't it? It does indeed. <laughs> but, you know, we do the show. And, and that's why I'm doing it. I know you're doing it for the same reason, because we have a job to do. It's necessary. It's necessary, because we see what's going on around us, and we've picked up that that opportunity to get some of these ideas out that we think are necessary in order to avoid some of these horrible calamities that we see happening around the world. And that's the job we're going to continue next week as well, and we hope that you will join us again at that time when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. See ya. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I fly a lot And uh, I was just in, in Canada And whenever I fly I bring this with me um, Which I guess now is illegal But the thing about it is that it's not Really shaving cream It actually has a false bottom And uh, it's just full of goodies And also has a letter to the security people If they find it 
Dear Transportation Security Administration Agent, Please find in my fake can of shaving cream several incongruous items. These items are meant to be funny and not dangerous. Please let me pass. I don't have a bomb. I know I am not allowed to joke about having a bomb, which is why I spelled it B-A-L-M. As far as I know, homonyms are allowed on planes. <laughs> <laughs>